probably the biggest thing we learned from this text this morning is that God can use anything, including our mistakes and even our sinful decisions, for his glory and our good. We see this so clearly in the story of this guy named Abram, who we know as the father of faith, right? If there's one thing you associate with Abraham, it's his great faith. And yet, very early on in his story that we have in scripture, we see him faltering in this. But God can use anything, even our mistakes and sinful decisions, for his glory and our good. In 1974, there was a man named Charles Colson um, who was incarcerated because he was part of um, a government event known as the Watergate Scandal. Charles Colson was special advisor to Richard Nixon, and he and six other men um, were accused and eventually put in prison for the part they played in this very famous, notorious government scandal. He pled guilty to obstruction of justice um, and served seven months in prison. Now, Charles Colson was a guy who was very driven, very skilled, very motivated. He was a leader, um, but at the time lacked morals and was a part of this very embarrassing thing. What's interesting about his story, though, is that after the Watergate stuff went down, but a year before he went into prison, he became a believer. Um, probably all the difficult things that he knew were in front of him caused him to seek answers. He turned to the Lord, became a Christian. Um, started, uh, once he got into prison, he started a Bible study and worldview class for his fellow inmates and just really engaged, really chose to see that time he had in prison as a ministry opportunity. He got out of prison and at that point started a, a prison ministry called Prison Fellowship International. Now, that was in 74, and I listened to this. And this year, um, 2019, that ministry now exists in over 120 different countries. I think we use, we use numbers, and they just kind of like, oh, 120, 2,000, whatever, and we just don't think about it. But can you even name 120 countries? I can't, right? Like, I don't think I could even name 120 countries, but this ministry has grown so much that he started that it's operating in prisons in 100 and different countries around the planet. He went on to write 30 books, received 15 honorary doctorates. From President George Bush, he received the Presidential Citizens Medal, which is so ironic, right, that someone involved in the Watergate scandal would years later receive an honorary medal from one of our later presidents. Um, but it's just a testimony to how much this guy's life was transformed through him turning to Christ in the difficult situations that God brought him through after he came to faith. And it's really, if you think about it, it's hard to imagine how Charles Colson could have had anywhere close to the level of impact he was able to have had it not been for his sin. Right? Had it not been for the mistakes he made and the situations he was in in prison, that he would actually serve time in prison, it's hard to imagine how he would have ever given any thought to or much less considered starting a ministry to serve inmates in prison. But what we see is that God can use anything, even our mistakes and sinful decisions, for his glory and our good. And that's where we're at in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 12, Ron walked us through that 
last week about how Abraham had this great faith that God called him to go, to just up and leave. And he told him that he was going to have a father. He's going to be a, be a father, even though he was very advanced in years. And he just believed. He had great faith. Until verse 10, when we see that sometimes he didn't. So just to kind of summarize this story here in Genesis chapter 12, basically it went down like this, that um, they're traveling, they're coming to Egypt because there was a famine in the land and they heard there was plentiful food in Egypt, so they go there. And beforehand, Abraham had made, Abraham had made this, uh, this deal with Sarai, his wife. He said, look, when we go into a new city like this, here's what I want you to do. I, I don't want them to see how beautiful you are. Um, apparently, uh, Sarai was uh, nice to look at. He was worried about that. And so when he went down, they went into a new city. He was like, let's do this. Just tell everyone you're my sister. Um, and then if anyone wants to take you with them, you just go with them. We'll just be, have to be okay with that so that I can survive. Otherwise, they're going to take you and they're going to kill me. And so when this happens in Egypt, Pharaoh takes her in. And all of a sudden, things start going poorly for him. He starts having plagues. Things are going wrong with him. He realizes something is amiss. He confronts Abraham about it. Abraham tells him the truth. And then eventually, he basically says, well, you know what? You guys just need to get the heck out of here, basically. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with these plagues. I don't want to deal with you. You need to leave. Here's some livestock and some money and some servants to take on your way out. So even though Abraham displayed a huge lack of faith, right, didn't really trust God moving into this situation to provide for him, to take care of him, God still is faithful and uses that. And Abraham comes out on the other side of it better off than when he came in. So what I want to do this morning is just make four observations about this story, four general observations, just what we see, what we learn from the text, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time at the end applying those things to our own lives. First observation I want to make is not, maybe not even super helpful on a practical level, but just kind of cool, is that this is a very similar thing to the story of Exodus, right? If you read the book of Exodus, when all the Israelites have, have multiplied, they're numerous in Egypt and they're slaves, the story of what happens to them is so, so similar. Um, if you read it, we'll see it at the end of Genesis. The reason Israel ends up in Egypt to begin with is because there was a famine. Just like with Abraham, he left to go to Egypt because there was a famine. They flee to Egypt. Um, and just like with Abraham, in the story of Exodus, the, the Israelites are worried for their lives. Um, there's trouble upon them. Um, and then just like with Abraham, God delivers them through a series of of plagues, and just like Abraham, they're financially blessed. When Israel leaves Egypt, it says the Egyptians were basically throwing their money and their jewels and their livestock at him. Here, as you go, just take this. It's the same thing that happens to Abraham. He's in a tough situation. His wife is in another man's house, but God sends plagues in order to deliver him, and then he is blessed on his way out, which is kind of cool because you have to think, as Israel was in Egypt, they had to have looked back on that story and thought, maybe God will come through. This seems like a tough situation. It's difficult. There's not really any hope in sight, but maybe God will deliver us like he did Abraham. And sure enough, he did. Another observation I'm going to make is that God's blessing is potentially jeopardized by Abraham's lack of faith in this story. 
So it's, it's interesting, there's um, this, this, whole, this whole thing happens two different times in the book of Genesis, at least twice that we know of, um, two that are recorded. In Genesis chapter 20, a very similar thing happens in a different location. We actually get a little bit more detail about it. So same deal, they come up to a city, Abraham is told there, hey, just say you're my sister so, we don't, so I don't get killed. So they do that. Uh, plagues come upon this man named Abimelech who took her in. And Abimelech gets mad just like Pharaoh. And the way he responds is, is interesting. Look, uh, it'll be on the screen, I think, chapter 20, verse 9 in Genesis. It says this. Then Abimelech, that's the king there, called to Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. I love the end of this verse. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. I want to start using that in like normal conversation when someone's wronged me, you know, like someone does something that's offensive. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Um, So he says that, and then he, he keeps going, and he basically says, why? Verse 10, he says, And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing like, what made you so upset with us that you would do this horrible thing to curse us in this way by causing us to sin against your God? Look on in verse 11, it says, Abraham said, well, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Basically, he said, I just kind of assumed that you guys didn't fear the Lord, and so when I got here and you saw how beautiful my wife was, you would kill me so that you could have her. Then in verse 12, he says, besides, love this, besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my, uh, let's see, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. So what we learn in this, in this story is that Sarai is actually his half-sister. So he's like trying to spin it, right? Well, technically, I didn't lie here. I mean, she is my sister after all, right? So he's, he's being deceptive, but trying to kind of give himself a loophole in the way he describes it. Um, And then in verse 13, we find out that this was their plan all along. It says, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness that you must do to me. At every place which we come to, save me, he is my brother. And I think that, that account of Abraham doing this is so interesting because it's basically showing us that this was his M.O. Um, He didn't get to Egypt and see a lot of things that really scared him and think, Man, they're probably going to kill me. He said from the very beginning, when God told him to go from his home country and be a sojourner, to, to wander, he basically said, look, when we do this, like, we're going to come to places, and, and here's the plan. Anywhere we go, you're just going to pretend to be my sister so that I won't get killed. And I think that's why, why we see this kind of put forth in Genesis as, as a lack of faith. Um, because there are a couple times in Scripture, notably Exodus chapter 1, where God seems to make allowance or kind of be okay with someone being deceptive um, in order to preserve life. You remember this, right? In Exodus chapter 1, when um, Pharaoh commands that all of the firstborn sons of Egypt be killed, but then the, the midwives who are delivering them just basically tell Pharaoh, look, we, the, 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 the Hebrew women are strong women, and they're having their babies before we can get there. In reality, they weren't, right? In reality, the, the, maids, the, uh, the midwives just didn't want to kill Uh, these little babies, but they lied to Pharaoh about it, and God kind of blessed them for lying to protect someone. I think the reason Abraham's case is different, the reason it's kind of portrayed in Scripture as a negative thing is because he just, it was his MO. He just decided from the very beginning 
he was not going to trust God with this, um, but that he was going to try to take matters into his own hands and lie in order to preserve his life. And we see it kind of put forth as an instance of him not trusting God. And the reason that's significant is because God had made this promise that this rescue mission, that, that he was going to bless all nations through Abraham and his family, and his decision to allow his wife to go into another man's house was going to jeopardize that, right? That that could throw things off by him allowing her to be with another man like that. That could jeopardize the promise. It was in danger But then what we see is that God remains faithful despite Abraham's lack of faith. And even though Abraham had a severe lack of faith, lack and trust in God in this situation, he actually comes out ahead. It actually works out to his benefit despite his distrust, despite his sin, because God is faithful. Now, I feel like we gotta point this out before we go any further. It doesn't always go that way when we don't trust God, right? When we choose not to trust God in the midst of difficult situations, things don't always turn out for our favor. I mean, if you, if you keep reading and you look at Israel's history, what you see is that time and time again, they continue to not trust God and finally God just basically has enough of it and he gives them over to their sin. Think about Israel in the wilderness, right? They make the golden calves, they complain, they just continue, they refuse to go in and take the land because they're afraid, because they don't think God will protect them when they go to conquer these people that look like giants to them. So they're scared, they don't obey, and what happens? God causes them to wander around the wilderness for 40 years and they die. Right? So just because in this instance, Abraham's faithlessness results in him coming better off, it, it doesn't always work out that way. If you think about the story in 1 Kings and Solomon's rebellion, when Solomon basically turns from the Lord at the end of his life, and at the time he's king over all Israel, but then part of his punishment is that God tears away, God strips from him, Ten of the tribes. And so then Israel is split into two different nations, and it's because of his sin. So it, things don't work out well for Solomon at the end of his life because of his sin, because he stopped trusting God. And even in the story of Abraham, right, like on the surface, Abraham comes out ahead because he leaves with male servants, female servants, donkeys, camels, sheep. I, I don't remember what else was listed in there, Pro- probably some cats and stuff. Um, but he, he goes out with this all this loot, basically, these great rewards. But what we see in chapter 12, 16 is that this woman named Hagar becomes a stumbling block for him. She's an Egyptian woman, probably one of the servants that was given to him in this story that then becomes a stumbling block to him. But in all of it, we see that God is still committed to his promises even when his people stumble. And I think we'd be missing the point of the story if we didn't observe this idea of it too, that God's faithfulness to us is rooted in his passion for his name. Do you guys remember how this, how this story with Abraham started, right? If you don't, turn back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, when God calls Abraham and kind of lays out, here's what I'm about to do. Genesis 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred to your father's house to the land that I will show you. Verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. Why? 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. One of the ideas that comes out of this is that God is committed to this plan, right? That God has this plan to use his chosen servant Abraham and his family to make his name known, to be a blessing to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. Because that's what God does. He, he chooses a people for himself, he blesses them, and he uses that people to bless others. And the greatest blessing he, he, he issues through them is to make him known to the other nations. And so God is so committed to this that he's not going to let Abraham mess it up by his sin. He's not going to let that thwart his plan to make his name known, to make his name great among all nations. We see this in several other parts of our, of our Bibles. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19, it's an interesting thing going on where Israel has, has had judges ruling them, and they've, they're just kind of sick of that, and they've said they want to be like all the other nations, and they want a king. And God has told them, my desire for you is that you would not be like the other nations, and that you would not have a king, but that I would be your king. And they basically told Samuel the prophet, no. We get that, but we want a king, so you need to appoint a king for us. And God tells Samuel, you know what? Do what they say. And at the end of Samuel's life, he's addressing them. He knows he's about to die. It's kind of like his last speech to Israel, kind of as their, their, their father, their kind of spiritual guide. And he says this. It says that all the people said to Samuel, in verse 19, pray for your servants. They realize that they've sinned, and they're saying this to Samuel. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Just another instance, just like with, with Abraham, where God basically says, yeah, this people, they have acted wickedly. They have turned aside from me, but I am not going to forsake them. Verse 22, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because he has a plan that he's committed to to make his name known and to make himself famous to the ends of the earth through this people. Probably the most um, stark example of this in our scriptures is in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9 through 11. Same idea, but God says it like this. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Look at this. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? I don't know about you guys, but I know the first time I saw those verses in my Bible, I thought, well, that sounds kind of selfish, right? I mean, if anyone else said that other than God, we wouldn't really respect that person, right? Look, I'm doing this for me, not you for my own sake. In case you didn't understand, for my own sake, I'm doing this. But here's the beautiful thing about that. When God does it, it's right. 
when God acts for the sake of his glory, his fame, among all nations, it is a good thing for us because it's, it's, like, it's like security in the promises he's given to us. Right, that God, if you are God's people, if you are his child, then you are part of this plan. You're a part of this plan he has to make his name great among all nations. And because he cares so much about that plan, because he cares so much about his name and his glory and his praise among all nations, he is going to be faithful even when we are not. Because he's committed to it. Because he's chosen to use us to accomplish his purposes, his purposes and he is not going to back away from that. That God has chosen to use his people to make his name known to the ends of the earth. And he will not allow our unfaithfulness to thwart that plan. So when we look at how this applies to us, um, there's lots of different ways we could do it, but we could summarize them like this. The first is this, is that God can bless us and make his name great even through our mistakes. God can bless us and make his name great even in the midst of us making mistakes and sinning. He can use that. I think just about everyone who's, who's, had, um, who's ever committed to a Bible reading plan has experienced this at some point. I was talking to someone in my small group about it recently, how um, let's just say you, you're saying, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and you've got this plan, and you've got your verses you're supposed to read each day, and then you miss a couple days, right? And you're like, man, I need, I need to catch back up. So you sit down and you start right back where you should have read two days ago. And for whatever reason, like through God's sovereignty, the thing you read that day is the exact thing you needed to hear that day. Anyone, anyone raise your hand and want to say that's happened to you? Just, just about any time you've, you've, you've given yourself to a plan and you miss a day, that, that's happened, right? That through your laziness or whatever it was, God used that to give you the scripture you needed on the day when you picked it back up. Just one example of that. I, I can't think of a, a better example of this than a surprise pregnancy, right? Someone gets pregnant outside of wedlock, bad decision, right? Sinful decision, but God uses that, and they come out way better off on the other end because of it. Happens all the time, right? Because the reality is that when we sin, when we mess up, it, it, we, we sometimes have this temptation to think, well, now I've done it. Now I've blown it. Things are going to go south from here, right? I can never get back on track. But just like with Israel, God says, yeah, yeah, you know what? Yes. You have sinned. God tells Israel when they ask for a king, yes, you have done this great evil, but now serve me. Serve me today. Trust me today. Yes, you have messed up in the past, but now serve me. Trust me. Follow me in the situation that you're in. The fact that Israel had a king from then on out did not make it uh, impossible or even really difficult for them to still remain faithful to the Lord. Even though them having a king was somewhat of a consequence of their sin and their rebellion, God actually used that in some amazing ways. And the same is true for us. Now, you've got to be careful with this because you, you don't want to use this as an excuse, right? You don't want to say, well, look, hey, God can use any sin, so uh, here we go, right? Um, I'll tell you an example of this I see a lot because we work with students um, at my job at IGO, is students that want to, um, high school, middle school students who decide, 
they want to date someone who's not a believer in Jesus. And let me just if, say this to you if you're in here. If you're believing in Jesus and you're a student, there is absolutely no wisdom in you dating or pursuing a, a, a romantic relationship with someone who doesn't know the Lord. And what can often happen is, is, is students will say, well, yeah, but I really feel like God can use that. Yeah, maybe. God can also use drug addiction. <laughs> Does that mean we should all go try to get addicted to drugs so that God can use it? No, of course not, right? Just because God can use it doesn't mean you should rush headlong into what is obviously a bad decision, right? So we don't want to use this as an excuse, but at the same time, it does give us hope and assurance on the backside of a sinful or bad decision. It gives us confidence on the mission field, right? I was thinking, um, thinking about this. I just got back from uh, seeing our teams in Germany and London this last week. And it's funny because, you know, when, when especially students or really any of us that we we go out to try to share our faith, like we know we're gonna make some mistakes, right? We know we're gonna say some dumb things, put our foot in our mouth, or just not start the conversation the right way. And the encouragement we keep giving the students is like, look, God can still use that. Like, it does, it's okay if you're, if you're well-meaning, move into a conversation with someone trying to share the gospel, you make some mistakes or you foul some things up, it's okay, right? God can use it. We apply that same thing to our everyday lives, right? That is, we make some bad mistakes in parenting, right? We say some really bad things to our kids at times, but God can use it. It shouldn't stop us from moving into it, from going for it when we have opportunities to minister to people. And on the backside of bad decisions as well, like maybe you've done something negligent and lost your job or lost your, your ability to minister to others because you just said or did something that was inappropriate and out of line. God can use that. Just like with Charles Colson, God can use that sin to, to put you in a situation to meet people, minister to people in ways that you otherwise couldn't have. Some of you guys have stories about this, right? That you made some really bad decisions at one point in your life, but now God uses that as a way to minister to those who are in despair, who've made similar mistakes. Maybe you've hurt someone or wronged someone in your family or in this body. You've said some things or done some things to some other people that there's a rub there, that there's a, a break, there's um, some hurt feelings there. But you know what? Maybe God can use that conflict to bring you on the other side of it in an even better relationship with that person than you would have been had that conflict not arisen. He does it all the time. Maybe you've done something awful that I haven't even mentioned today, but just a horrible thing. Know that God can use that for his glory. Know that you're not stuck there. God does not look upon your sin and go, yeah, I guess that's it for you. God's invitation to come near to him is always there, even in the midst of your sin, even after your sin. God says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And there are no conditions placed upon that, period. No matter what you've done, no matter what mess you're in, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It's an encouraging thing for those of us in this room who've ever made mistakes. 
Second thing we see application-wise in this text is that God regards those who trust him as faithful even when we stumble. Abraham was displayed such great faith until he didn't, right? Had such great faith. Ron talked about that last week and the Bible heralds him for that, praises him for that. And then you've got instances like this. I think a lot of us allows us to relate to Abraham that way, right? I think there's a lot of people in here that you would say in general, man, you are trusting God. You've trusted him to save you. You're trusting him with your finances through giving. You're trusting his, what he has said by making a commitment to gather here with his people on Sunday mornings. Like you are exercising a lot of faith just like Abraham until you don't. Until things happen that rattle you. Maybe you're exercising great faith and then you get the diagnosis. Or your kids rebel. Or your marriage gets hard. Or serving the church is seeming difficult and burdensome and it becomes harder to trust the Lord in those difficult situations. Or the threats or the criticisms come and you want to try to do something to fix it, whether it's lying or being deceptive or whatever it is. The encouraging thing for me about this is that ultimately, God looks at Abraham and says, faithful. Even after this, right? The God's synopsis, God's uh, summary of Abraham's life is a man of faith. Because you hear that and you look at this story and you think, Really? A man of faith, like before he even gets to the place, he says, hey, you're going to pretend you're my sister so they won't kill me. Doesn't sound like a man of faith. But there's times in all our lives where people could say the same thing, right? That's not a man of faith. He just lied to cover his rear. And we all saw it. It's not a man of faith. If we are following and trusting the Lord as a whole, right? if we are leaning on him, drawing near to him, pursuing him, then even when we stumble, even when we have moments or instances or maybe big events where we don't trust the Lord, that God looks at that and says, faithful, man of faith. How is that? Because it's not based on us. Because the faithfulness that God requires is more of an admission than an accomplishment, right? What God is after in our faith is not our accomplishments through our faith. It's not that we would perform really, really, really well or do really, really, really great things with our lives. The faith God is looking for is an admission, not an accomplishment. The faith he's looking for is an admission of, you know what, God, I, I, don't, I, I don't have this all figured out and I need you. I mean, nowhere do we see that more clearly than in our faith in what Jesus has done on the cross on our behalf, right? It's a faith of admission that we look at what Jesus has done and we don't say, our faith isn't, man, we can accomplish a lot of great things. Our faith is knowing that we dropped the ball, knowing that we weren't faithful, but that God loved us enough to send his son to bear our sin, to bear our iniquity, that if we might place our faith in him, that he would see that as faithful 
our admission that we are not good enough to stand in the presence of a holy God, but trusting that Jesus has done it for us, that in our performance, we're gonna mess up in that. There's gonna be times where we don't trust God in specific situations, but it's a faith of admission. It's us admitting that and drawing near to God, knowing that he is faithful even when we aren't. That God, as we move through this life, God will use even our sins and mistakes to continue fulfilling his commitment to make his name known to the ends of the earth and to bless us even in the midst of our mistakes. That God will bring us through things where we'll be the better because of it, even our mistakes and sins. And if that that doesn't give you hope and encouragement this morning, I don't know what would, right? That God is so gracious and so amazing that he will, through your mistakes and sins, make his name known and bless you. Again, not as a not as a encouragement to all go sin this week, right? So that we can experience God's blessing. If we completely turn away from him as a whole, it doesn't work out that way. But if we draw near to him, even after failing, he will draw near to us and we'll be the better for it. Let's pray. God, thank you that thank you that our, our holy book, our scripture is not filled with archetypes of of men who are 100% faithful to you, but God, that we have real people who struggled and failed to trust you just like we do. God, thank you for the life of Abraham and what we learned from that. I pray we'd be encouraged this week that whatever mistakes we've made in the past that maybe still haunt us or we're still living in the wake of those mistakes, that you would assure us that you will use it for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen.